Hey there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about a ceasefire in Yemen, an insurgency in Thailand, and Sri Lanka on lockdown. Uh, yeah, all that and more, coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. So, we have a large explosion at a nightclub that rocks Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan. An unknown number of people have died, although so far from what I read, no one had died yet. But that was about two days ago, so the situation may have been updated. French elections grow near and are likely to be a referendum on Macron with regards to his COVID lockdowns. And probably at this point in the game, his response to Ukraine. Uh, That's the hot topic now. So, if the elections in Hungary are anything to go by, Macron might have a bit of an issue. But France is a different country than Hungary. So, really we'll only know after the fact how things are going to go. Meanwhile, the Pentagon is set to give Ukraine uh, an additional... Five hundred million dollars, uh, in addition to the thirteen billion that were already being given to them by the U.S. Congress. Now, why we need to give so much money to Ukraine is beyond me, but uh, that's what's happening. We'll see what comes of it. I swear, if all those weapons just end up in the hands of the Russian military. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the Prime Minister of Poland, Mateusz Morawiecki, I believe I got that right, he admits that the sanctions on Russia are not working, um, and I'll just add here that Russia actually seems to be getting stronger and even more resilient to them than they already were. Their currency is now pegged to gold. They've set an exchange rate for rubles to gold, which is effectively one step closer than any other country on the planet, to a gold standard. That combined with people having to purchase Russian oil in rubles means, uh, and not just rubles, but Russia's accepting gold and even, I believe, Bitcoin? Not too sure on the Bitcoin, but I know they're accepting gold and or rubles, meaning Russia's now paving the way towards a, a gold standard again. And their currency, in the face of these sanctions, has rebounded and is probably going to get stronger as the conflict goes on. One, because of the power of those gas exports. As a matter of fact, those gas exports are going to be the main reason their currency gets stronger. Because remember, they've been sanctioned by all these Western countries. So now, if you want to get the Russian oil, you got to pay in Russia's currency, and that's going to strengthen it. Either that, or you have to give them gold which will also strengthen their currency because they pegged the currency to a fixed um, exchange of gold. So, either way you go, the oil sales are going to strengthen Russia's economy and Europe gets most of its energy 
this particularly natural gas from Russia. So the people who have sanctioned Russia are going to pay for their own sanctions to that country and strengthening Russia's economy and currency in the process. It's absolutely wild to watch. Uh, speaking of Russia, they have reportedly opened up even more humanitarian corridors in the Donbass region. A two-month ceasefire has been put into place in Yemen, courtesy of the UN. We'll be talking a little bit more about that later. The Pakistani president, Imran Khan, has sidestepped a vote of no confidence by calling for new elections altogether. We'll see how this pans out for him. Speaking of elections, Viktor Orban of Hungary, uh, after announcing his intention of deliberately staying out of the Ukraine war, went on to win his election in a landslide, with his party getting around 60% of the vote. So, wow. So that, that's kind of why I brought that up when talking about the French elections. So, we'll see what comes with that. The Hungarians have put their foot down and said, we're not getting involved in Ukraine, which I'll just use to further my point that if Hungary can stay out of Ukraine, then the United States can stay out of Ukraine. Because, you know, Hungary has a border with Ukraine, actually. It's a very small one, but they have a border. We do not. If Hungary can stay out, we can stay out. And I'll just leave that there. And lastly, since the front is mostly quiet in Ukraine, I'm going to take a break from the coverage uh, for this week. For this week, we'll see if something special happens after today, and I'll cover it next week. But uh, ever since the Russians entered phase two of operations, the front line has stabilized. So we'll see what comes from this. And, uh, most likely, it'll probably be more domestic than anything else. As the longer the war in Ukraine goes on, the worse Joe Biden's reputation gets. They even had, I believe, Trump calling on Putin to release any data regarding the Burisma scandal. And probably while they're at it, the DNC server and the Clinton emails. We'll see what comes of that. I mean, Russia's in control here, so they could if they wanted to. And that's pretty real possibility, considering they have no reason to hold back against Biden. Or the Clintons, for that matter. So, we'll see what happens. They, they also have no reason to help the U.S. administration either. Trump. So, it's just a matter of waiting and seeing on this. But, that is the rapid fire news, and we'll get into the meat of today's episode in just a moment. Alright, and we're back. It'll be time to get into the meat of the episode, and we'll start it off with. Who do I want to start it off with? Uh, do I want to go Yemen, Thailand, Sri Lanka? How about none of them, and we'll go to Israel? <laughs> Ah, I threw you for a curveball there. I didn't mention this one in the description or the preamble because we have Israel and the UAE. Uh, this is the latest story that I snatched before beginning the episode. Uh, last week, it, Israel and the UAE signed a free trade deal in which 95% of their traded goods would move between the two countries customs free. Now, both of them combined have about... Uh, I don't know why I say combined, it's just them. Uh, they, Their trade with each other was about 600 
to $700 million annually as of last year's data. So probably some still in that range if we're talking 2020, uh, 2021 and not 2020. So probably still there. So you're talking 95% of that. That's easily what? Over 500 to over $600 million worth of trade that is now customs free. And I gotta say, this is definitely a step in the right direction for Israel and is most definitely a far cry from the policies that they pursue in other areas of their foreign policy that I am convinced are going to get them killed. Uh, speaking of said policies, Israel's anti-Iranian stance, however, may prove to be highly problematic for their newly acquired trade deal with the UAE. Let me explain. Uh, the key to this is geography. Really, that's really at the heart of the problem that presents itself now. Yeah. And what I mean by that is specifically the geography of where Iran and the UAE are. Iran and the UAE are Persian Gulf countries. The UAE is on one side, Iran is on the other, but in order to get out of the Persian Gulf, you have to go through the Straits of Hormuz, a choke point that Iran can block if they wanted to, uh, that's going by sea. By air, or by land, Israel is on the wrong side of this landmass to do anything in the event of hostilities breaking out between them and Iran. Israel wouldn't be able to do much to stop Iran from cutting them off from their trade with the UAE. And when you look at a map of the region, it becomes easier to see than me just explaining it, but I'll just do my damnedest to explain it anyway, because this is a podcast, not a, a YouTube video. Yeah, But, uh, yes, so that's the root of the problem that presents itself. Not that the trade deal itself is a problem, it's just that the trade deal and the geography of where Israel's newest trade partner is conflicts with Israel's other policies in the region, primarily their policy of, well, no, there's no other way of putting it, fighting Iran. They're straight up fighting Iran. It's an undeclared war, but they're fighting Iran. Because of where Iran is, they can easily complicate this trade deal if things got that far. Any trade deal between Israel and the UAE, whether that's by land, sea, or air, has to go by either Iran's allies, if it's by land or by air, where you go through the Arabian desert all the way up to Israel, in which case, at the very end of that journey, you have to go by Jordan and or Syria. You have to go by one of the two. If you're going by land or by air, Syria is unquestionably an Iranian ally. Jordan is well within the Iranian sphere of influence. So those are a distinction there, but that distinction can be overcome in time. So you have that if you go by land or by air. And by air is probably more dangerous for you as Syrian air defenses, whenever they get used, could shoot you down or hell, 
You could just have an Iranian jet fighter do the job, if that's what it took. If we're talking about an open war instead of the undeclared war. That's by air and by land. Or, if it doesn't go by air or by land, any trade with Israel that goes by sea to the UAE, or from the UAE to Israel specifically, it has to go by Iran itself. Again, the Straits of Hormuz is a choke point that if you want to go by sea to uh, from Israel to the UAE or from the UAE to Israel, you got to go through that choke point. Iran doesn't have to do much to ruin your day. Just take a big fat dump on any attempted trade you were going to do. Yeah, you're not doing it today. They could do it. And it's right there. So Israel's policy of hostility towards Iran, if it becomes bigger than they can handle, if they bite off more than they can chew, and they certainly are biting a lot these days, that trade could be cut off very, very easily. Very easily. Dangerously easily, I would say. But, well, I'm not the one running Israel's foreign policy. But I'll say it's dangerous. And uh, there's my case right there. If I've presented it correctly for you to understand. So, these are pretty big complications when your, your newest trade partner is two feet away from your biggest enemy two feet away but that's I, I really don't get it I mean Israel's doing a good job with regards of taking advantage of the Abraham Accords that were broken with them they've got deals with Morocco which is one of the first signatories they're gonna deal with the UAE now who was also a signatory um so these are good moves that Israel is making, and they're definitely a step in a positive direction. But then there's their policy towards Iran, which complicates, well, not so much the trade with Morocco. There's nothing much Iran could do about that. But the trade with the UAE can be cut off immediately, especially, especially if... This undeclared war between Israel and Iran truly does escalate to a, a, an out-in-the-open war that you, even if it's undeclared, no one's going to sit there and go, oh yeah, they're not really at war. But that's the path that Israel and Iran seem to be on. And it really just depends on how fast Iran chooses to escalate up to Israel's level. Because once they get to Israel's level, it's all at war. And that is the degree to which Israel has been playing, and increasingly these days, overplaying their hand. Uh, they have a strong military, but if the full force of the Iranian military were brought to bear, I do not believe Israel would be able to pull off another Yom Kippur war. I don't think they could. Now, maybe they can, and I'm just wrong. Maybe, maybe I'm just, I've lost my touch, so to speak. But, um... I I don't see, I don't see a way out of this for Israel unless they change course. Even when they make good moves like this, and I should stress that this trade deal is a good development. It's just that their other policies complicate it and needlessly endanger it. 
There's no way Iran's going to let that trade get to Israel if they're in a state of war. Heck, if Iran really wanted to, they could start hacking everything in sight. If we're, if we're to believe that cyber warfare has reached that point where everything is hackable, and therefore everything will be hacked in the event of a war. Now, the Russo-Ukrainian war isn't necessarily a good example of whether or not we're there yet, because Russia's deliberately holding back. Like if, if them stopping after taking what they have taken to not attack Ukraine, if them not flattening Kiev on day three didn't like show us all that the Russians are holding back greatly and exercising an incredible degree of restraint or the the fact that the power is still running in Ukraine <laughs> but um they're not a good example of whether or not cyber is there yet but I'd imagine if there was some sort of total war between Israel and Iran we'd find out very quickly if cyber warfare was on that level that it's being hyped up to be but with or without it this trade is vulnerable to the conflict with Iran that Israel continues to make for itself. And it's just this really weird conundrum that I've stumbled across with regards to Israel's foreign policy. The more they do this with Iran, the more they're going to hurt themselves in the long term. Because they, they can't dominate Iran forever. Especially as Iran is becoming the dominant power of the Middle East. It's... The dynamics are shifting too greatly in Iran's favor right now for Israel to walk all over them forever. And once Iran starts hitting back, it's it's not going to be pretty for Israel. And I'll, I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there. And we'll go to a different part of the region. We're going to go to Yemen. Uh, because in Yemen, another positive development. A two-month ceasefire has been put into place in Yemen, courtesy of the UN. And we we have here is a truce that was announced on the 2nd of April. So that would be Saturday. And what this truce is, is that the, well, it's more religious than anything else, if I'm not mistaken. It's religious uh is it religious it might be I, I think it is i think it is um or at least religious partly related and the only reason i know that is because of a, a different story that involves people of the same faith but in thailand instead of yemen but in yemen we have a two month long truce starting in starting two days ago and the conditions are that the two sides would stop shooting at each other. They'll agree to continuing dialogue for a more durable peace settlement between the warring parties. And so those are the those are the two stipulations for this peace. Very very basic, but if it works, it works. We'll just run with it and hope it brings us to somewhere people like to be, and doesn't devolve back into fighting. Although. Although, I, I imagine we're probably going to see more fighting before this is over. Because that just seems to be the nature of a lot of these conflicts these days. Brokering the peace doesn't seem to work. Now, maybe it's just the fault of the people 
doing the negotiating from the outside in, but maybe it's just ideological. Or maybe it's the fact that these are all primarily civil wars we're talking about here. I mean, what peace was ever going to be negotiated between Ukraine and the Donbass? Like, I can harp on Ukraine for completely disregarding the Minsk agreements as much as I would like. But at the end of the day, I understand why they would do it. Who the hell wants to give up part of their country? Or cede control over part of their country because other countries said so. Like, even though Ukraine signed the Minsk agreements, what other option did they have? We're just going to not sign it and then get shit upon by Russia? Or are we going to sign it and buy ourselves some time to wrap this shit up? I mean, who would want to have to give up part of their country. And again, the Minsk agreements, they didn't have to give up part of the country. They would the Donbass just would have been autonomous zones within Ukraine. But that's a blow to the national pride that I'm pretty sure I myself probably wouldn't accept if something similar would have happened to the United States. I mean would we have accepted local autonomy in the Confederacy? No. We, 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 I can guarantee we wouldn't have. And hell, we burned half of it to the ground just to make them lose. And then we occupied them till like, 1870. But, like, I... Oh, what am I saying? These civil wars, these are civil wars. And so, attempts at brokering the peace, I feel, are probably doomed to fail in most cases. I mean, look at the Taliban and the the in Afghanistan. There was the Islamic Emirate, which was the Taliban, and the Islamic Republic, which was the puppet government from the US. Those two could never coexist. They could never coexist. One of them had to win, and it turns out it was the Islamic Emirate that won. Ukraine. One of these two sides has to win and if Ukraine can't beat the rebels by themselves, Ukraine's never going to beat the rebels when the rebels have Russia at their backs. Ukraine certainly isn't going to beat Russia in a one-on-one, let alone Russia plus the rebels. I mean, there's the deaths in the Donbass. It's just wild when you see these pictures. It's straight out of World War One, And I guess that's to be expected when you had trench warfare for, what, eight years until the Russian invasion. But these civil wars, I mean, uh, we can even look at Libya for in Syria. Why would Hafdar ever make peace with the Libyan government? Why, why would he do that? Why would the Libyan government make peace with Hafdar, for that matter? I mean, speaking of Libya, we're still waiting on these elections. That are supposed to end the war. We're still waiting on them. These conflicts, the nature of them, because these are civil wars, I do not believe that peace can be negotiated from outside forces. I mean, no one wants to give up a part of the. No one wants to give up a part of their country. No one wants to. No one's going to. 
not by choice. Luckily for Syria, their their nightmare with that menace to all societies, which is a civil war within a civil war within a civil war. They're almost done. They're they they can see the light at the end of the tunnel. They they well they've seen it for a while. They're almost there. They're almost out of the tunnel, and they're probably going to disengage from the region. They're they're going to log off once they're done. <laughs> We're not going to hear a word out of Syria once they, the guns go silent in there. But, again, with Syria, what peace was ever going to be negotiated between Assad and the Kurds? What peace was going to be negotiated between Assad and ISIS? What what peace was going to be negotiated between the Kurds and ISIS, for that damn matter? There was no peace. Peace was just not an option. These are people fighting for separate identities within the same country, but laying claim to the same geographic areas. It just wasn't going to go. It just wasn't going to go. And I feel, and partly fear, that the same is going to happen here in Yemen. They're, they're going to broker this truce. It may or may not last these two months. And then you're going to go back to the fighting. And while the truce is going on, you're going to have Iran arming and equipping the Houthis as much as humanly possible. Since now you can't shoot at the shipments coming into them. The, the Arabians can't destroy boats and trucks going to the Houthis now. There's a ceasefire. So, uh, I started off believing that the Saudi-slash-U.S.-backed opposition in Yemen would gain the most from this ceasefire, as they were the ones on the back foot. But, and while that still may be the case, I'm now starting to believe that uh, the Houthis might actually be the biggest beneficiaries of this, because now they get to solidify the gains that they've made during their last offensive. And they get to dig in a little bit while also being armed to the teeth with Iranian weapons and Iranian ballistic missiles. More Iranian ballistic missiles, which were already causing trouble in parts of southern Arabia. They were causing trouble in the UAE before when they bombed an airport. I mean, these, these guys aren't playing around. These guys really aren't playing around. So you give them, what, two months to... Refit and rearm? What's that going to do when they go back to war? Because again, these two months can be used by both sides to do exactly that. Refit and rearm with the intention of going back to war and not making peace at all. So, that's another thing to think about with regards to peacefire, peacefire, ceasefires and temporary peace agreements. Truces. Does a a truce in Ethiopia, I believe, between the Tigray and the Ethiopian federal government. So, we'll see what comes with that. Uh, and the reason I know there's a ceasefire there is because the UN is also sending aid for the first time in a while to the Tigrayan capital. Now, Tigray, as far as I know, doesn't have many much in the way of foreign backers. Uh, and neither does Ethiopia, so they're sort of 
shit out of luck. They, they don't get to pull a UAE. Well, not a UAE. They don't get to pull a Houthi. They don't get to pull a, an Assad government or a Libyan government where all these countries have foreign backers. Assad has Syria and Iran. The Houthis have Iran. The Libyan government has Turkey. Uh, who do who do the who does Tigray have? Uh, themselves. So there's no. <laughs> they have themselves and they have hope. But um, I think the tide may have turned decisively against them. But at this point, they're probably going to be fighting on. Tigrayan territory, so we probably still have maybe a year or two left in this conflict, at the very least, whenever the guns start opening up again, and I feel, again, even there, you're not going to get a peace settlement that's brokered from the outside in, it's just the nature of civil wars, so while this ceasefire in Yemen is a good thing, people aren't going to die for these two months, well, not from the war, anyway. When those two months are over, we could see conflict again, and it could be even more intense because they have more guns and more bullets and more bombs, and in the case of the Houthis, probably more ballistic missiles to throw at the enemy. Maybe it'll end in a blitzkrieg, similar to what we saw uh, when the Islamic Emirate took down the Islamic Republic and created a uh oh a momentous there's the word i'm looking for a momentous event in history i'll never forget the day that i woke up and had to rewrite a whole had to rewrite half my segment because half of it was just rendered obsolete overnight like i had stayed up that sunday to make sure that i had the most up-to-date information on this conflict because i was going to do it pretty beefy segment on it and then i wake up the next day and i have to rewrite half of it anyway because they're they're just walking through the streets of kabul i'm like oh oh my goodness this is i wow i was just wow they they beat out my expectations and i was saying all summer that they were gonna win i was all summer they're gonna win this they're, they're gonna win what 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 do you want me to say? Especially as they were winning, I didn't expect them to win that fast. Like, they took me by surprise, and I was in their corner. Uh, something similar could happen in Yemen. I'll just leave that possibility out there. But the ceasefire is good. We'll see what happens and what comes of it in the long term. That's the that's Yemen for ya. So uh, now. We get to talking about Thailand, or specifically the insurgency in Thailand. Ah, good old Thailand. You see, in my endless search for topics for us to talk about on this little podcast of mine, I've come across an insurgency in Thailand. You see, a, a Muslim insurgent group, because there's more than one of them, Muslim insurgent group fighting in southern Thailand. They have agreed to halt fighting between them and the Thai government during the uh, the holy holiday of Ramadan. So from the 3rd of April, which is Sunday, 
to the 14th of May, so a good month and a half from now, basically, there will be peace. Uh, no, I almost wrote that the peace would end on April the 14th. Uh, no, but uh, it's a good thing I reread that article. Uh, but that, that is neither here nor there. All right? The peace will last from yesterday till the 14th of May. And this is the thing that I was talking about regarding Muslims that may have contributed to the ceasefire in Yemen. The holy holiday of Ramadan. So it's going to go till May the 14th. But uh, the ceasefire in Yemen goes for two months. So that's an extra two weeks about. Just about for them. But heck, that could be time for Ramadan. And then time to get their minds right before they go back to war. So we'll see what comes of that. Again, we'll see what comes of that. But back here in Thailand, uh, you we have an insurgency to talk about. So let's get into it. Let's get some context for this. Uh, this under-the-radar conflict. Now, recent hostilities began way back in 2004. And uh, so I'm really, really pushing the limits of the term recent when I say that. Uh, and I say recent hostilities, in quotation marks, uh, because the Muslims, which are predominantly ethnic Malays living in the southern parts of Thailand... They've been in a state of rebellion in the country since about, uh, I forgot to write it down, so let's find out, why don't we? Uh, definitely not gonna cheat and use the pause button on the recording while I look this up on Google. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I'm not gonna do that, because I already did! Ah, so, <laughs> the re- the more- earlier hostilities that have been going on uh started in get this 1948 let me repeat that this muslim insurgency has been going on since 1948 when it first really began and then it died down for a little bit then came back in 2004 in force 1948. It's a long time. It's what? Almost 80 years? We got two years left to go before they reach the 80th year of this insurgency? Uh, I guess they got themselves an 80 years war. We'll see if they end up like the Dutch when it's over. But, um, yeah, it's been going on for quite a while. It just flew straight under the radar. A little happy I came across it. Uh, you know, happy in terms of reporting, not happy in terms of the death. You, you, look, we run a podcast here, not a crime syndicate. Goodness. But the violence, uh, again, had died down since, well, before the 2004 period. It kind of tapered off since it began in 1948, tapered down. And then exploded again in around 2004. And since 2004, over 7,000 people in Thailand have lost their lives due to the violence. And these aren't just Thai, ethnic Thai. Uh, these are the Muslims, the ethnic Malays as well. 
Uh, now, Thailand is a Buddhist country. So, kind of give a little bit of context as to why the two are in conflict and not just getting along. Uh, Thailand is a Buddhist country. These are Muslim insurgents. The Thai ethnicity is different from the Malay ethnicity. So, you have a combination of ethnic and religious conflicts. Uh, so, just layers of division here. And I'm pretty sure the geography of Thailand probably doesn't help either. Because it gets mountainous in certain parts and then it flattens out in others. I'm pretty sure this is the, the area where they're fighting in the southern parts of Thailand is more mountainous and hilly than like where Bangkok is. And that's the capital of Thailand. It's pretty flat around that area. So mountains, which just make it easy for an insurgency. You can ask the Islamic Emirate for that. Mountains plus ethnic differences plus religious differences. You overlay them all and you get a recipe for a very, very long-standing insurgency. Uh, so there's that. And it's a very interesting story that I came across. Very interesting story. I mean, the, the they've been attempting at reaching peace. And it, this attempt has been going on for years with the first round of talks between the insurgents and the Thai government being held back in 2013. And again, this is the first round of talks for this round of fighting that started in 2004. So for what, almost 10 years, there was no dialogue at all. And then you get the first little bit of dialogue in 2013. But the fighting continues. And again, this is an interesting story I came across. It's something different that certainly isn't covered much. Again, just flew completely under the radar for me. I was unaware that this was even happening until two days ago when I started looking through the news. And it just happened to pop up. So now I'm talking about it. But I have... uh, or should I say, as I have learned in my short time doing this little podcast of mine, is that sometimes it's the little things that count the most. Sometimes it really is. Uh, I mean, now this is a small rebellion. and How a small rebellion in Thailand is going to change the geopolitical arena, no one knows until it does. No one knows until it does. And, uh... That's the beauty of geopolitics for you. You never really know what you're gonna get. But it's always interesting to watch. Now, that would be a very fine segue into me closing out the episode. But I won't do that to you. I won't do that to you in half an hour. Half an hour episode. Well, six minutes. uh, Forty minutes. Counting the rapid fire news. But no, 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 no. I have just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Today's a bit of a shorter episode, but we get to cover more things as we take a break from what everyone else is talking about and really dive in on these, the world. Because the world is more than just, you know, the United States and Europe. The world is more than just the Middle East, even though I talk about the Middle East a lot these days. The world is a big place and there's lots going on. So, just enjoy ourselves this week and talk about what's going on around the world. Because now we're going to talk about 
Sri Lanka because Sri Lanka is on lockdown. Now, what do we got going on in Sri Lanka? So, we'll just dive deep in. Last week, protests near the home of Sri Lankan President Gotabaya Rajapaksa. And thank goodness I'm able to get that one right. So, protests near his house over the worst economic downturn in the country's history devolved into violent riots. And this prompted the government to deem the gathering as an act of terrorism. Uh, no, that's, that's pretty extreme, but okay. <clears throat> Those involved with the protest and later riot have been labeled extremists by the government. Opposition parties have been blamed for the radicalization of said extremists and for stirring up unrest in general. And this has caused mayhem in the streets as even more protests have erupted. And mayhem in the Sri Lankan parliament where all these, all the parties who've been accused of harboring terrorists, basically, are now saying this is ridiculous. And we're probably not going to have a functioning government in Sri Lanka for a little bit. Uh, Even if the party currently in war not party in the coalition that is currently in charge even if they remain in charge we're probably gonna have a bit of a chaotic number of sessions there which isn't gonna help the crisis or maybe it will and the crisis will have time to fix itself but that's that's the laissez-faire economist in me yeah anyway during the unrest that caused this uh this incident that led to vast swaths of the population being called terrorists uh, during the unrest, multiple people were injured and or arrested when the riot police eventually came to clear out the crowds. Now, tear gas, not grass, tear gas was used, water cannons were deployed, and a curfew was put into place in Colombo, the Colombo city. That's the country's capital. Now, this is Definitely a more chaotic response to the economic downturn. Uh, Much more chaotic than we've seen in Lebanon. And I bring up Lebanon because Lebanon is also going through a Great Depression-style downturn in their economy. Yet, in Lebanon, while there was protesting that took place, you didn't have mobs forming at the homes of their politicians. Now, Whatever your stance on doing that may be, I know there are certainly some anarchists out there who probably see that in a much more positive light than I do, even though, uh, you know, maybe some of them. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, maybe, maybe there are some people who view that in a more positive light and people who view it as an absolute negative. Whatever you, wherever you may stand on that, because I have, I have seen both, so that's the reason I even bring it up, bring up the two stances. But whatever the stance is, um, you just didn't have it. You didn't have it happen in Lebanon where people protested, what they protested in the streets, not at the homes of the politicians. Then again, similarly, the politicians 
you didn't see politicians in Lebanon brand their own people as terrorists. And I guess I'll just hold that one over the heads of the Sri Lankan government because I, I am of the opinion that that is wild accusation. There's definitely, definitely no parallels to that could have happened in the United States whatsoever. Wink, wink, wink. <laughs> January 6th. Wow, who said that? Yeah. You people are losing it. I swear, you people are just losing it. <laughs> but, <laughs> anyway. Oh, I, I crack myself up with these blatant, undisguised, unhidden allusions to things going on in the United States. Now, I wonder who could I be talking about when I say that we would never wink, ever wink, accuse our own people of being Nazis, wink, or terrorists, wink again. I wonder who, I wonder, nothing like that would happen in the United States, never, not not in a million years. (laughs) My, I would just, my sarcasm aside... Uh, my sarcasm aside, you you didn't have this happen in Lebanon. You didn't have people going to the homes of the politicians. You didn't have the politicians branding people as terrorists. But I guess one of the things we get to take away from this now is now we get to observe which one of these countries gets a quicker response from their government regarding the status of the economy. Now, I imagine that the Colombo City response is definitely faster than the Beirut response. Uh, but the the Colombo City response isn't winning any favors from the people. Meanwhile, the people in Lebanon seem to be generally all right with the direction the government is going with regards to trying to find a way out of the problem. So you have Two very different responses to an economic crisis, both on the ends of the common people and on the ends of the government. And there's definitely some interplay there that have contributed to the responses that both sides have gotten out of this. Uh, The Lebanese took the peaceful approach and they got a peaceful and respectful approach to the problem. Now, whether this is just the politicians being different because these are different countries again. That that can also be the case, but we'll just go with what we know. The people who protested in Lebanon ha- acted differently than the people who protested in um, Sri Lanka. Then, but then again, perhaps, perhaps it is because you have more foreign aid being given to and offered to Lebanon than you have going to Sri Lanka. Uh, I don't see much in the way of outcries for foreign aid going to Sri Lanka. You don't see the French or the British showing up with an economic recovery plan. You don't see the IMF looking to bail them out. So that too could contribute. Because like, if you are in a crisis, but you look around and you see that there are people inside and outside your country trying to help. You see your government trying to find aid. You see countries around you looking to give you aid. You see Iran giving you oil and shipping it across whole other countries to get it to you. 
you're going to feel a whole lot better about your situation than if you're, say, Sri Lanka, and no <laughs> no one's even extending the hand. No one's even giving you the option. You know, you have to go there with your hands out, your, your mug in hand, your cha- spare change, please. Uh, those are, again, two different situations. So perhaps that, too, also contributes to the mood, the public mood, because like, if you're in a crisis and you feel like you're being left out to dry by everyone around you, India hasn't taken this brilliant opportunity to really alter the geopolitics. And I don't know what's up with India. They, they're, they're on board with Russia with Ukraine, but they're, in my view, missing out on some opportunities in their own neighborhood that they could use to altered a situation that they feel pretty paranoid about, which is being encircled by China. They could recognize the governments of uh, Afghanistan and Burma. There we go. There we go. For some reason, I blanked on their names, even though I've said Afghanistan like eight times this episode. But they, they could be the first to recognize the Islamic Emirate as the legitimate government of Afghanistan. They could be the first to recognize the military junta in Burma as the legitimate government. They, they could be the first. Now, it would be, it would be controversial. Right? I'm not saying everyone in India would go along with it or would agree with it. But you can make you can put yourself at the top of the whitelist on all on both of these countries um in both of these countries I to say immediately with just one move and it costs nothing like nothing ha- else has to happen and you can put yourself on the highest possible footing the best possible footing with these two countries and now you can add Sri Lanka to that list by offering economic aid, especially at a time when India is afraid of being outflanked by China again in the Maldives. We talked, I believe it was la- just last episode, and we were talking about how they were afraid that this new, not new, this old president running again in the Maldives on an anti-India platform the, to remove Indian influence from the country which India naturally is going to fear is going to be replaced with Chinese influence at a time when that's your worry you got to be you got to be taking your chances and your opportunities I should say these aren't really like risks these are opportunities uh, uh, Myanmar is an outcast in the world right now India could single-handedly change that Afghanistan isn't so much an outcast, but they're like in a weird spot. India could change their position with Afghanistan in an instant by recognizing the Taliban, maybe negotiating a trade deal. I mean, it, you're going to need rare earth for the this upcoming industrial revolution that we're already in the midst of, the early, early parts of, which are probably going to make the end of this century look radically different from what we see today. Or, you know, the things we consider advanced will be child's play by the end of this century. Just as it was in the 1800s. And heck, even 1900s. <clears throat> Who could have imagined an iPad in 1901? 
or guided missile for that matter. That matter. Uh, no one. So rare earth. There's plenty of it in Afghanistan, and you know, you know, the Chinese are gonna be. They're already there. <laughs> what am I saying? They're already involved with the Belt and Road. They already signed on. India can, at the very least, make sure that they are a beneficiary of all those infrastructure projects that the Chinese are doing in Afghanistan. And since there's no infrastructure going through Burma yet, India can get in on the ground floor and set themselves up good with Burma. In that out, the Burma, good relations with Burma will outflank both China and Bangladesh, who India is currently having a bit of paranoia about because China has a friendly port there. If you take this adv- this opportunity to get good relations with Sri Lanka by helping them out in their economic crisis, that will effectively nullify the friendly port they've given to China if you don't just set up your own friendly port in Sri Lanka. Now that's an investment, but maybe you can fit it into an economic recovery plan, huh? Ah, uh, we're using our brain here. Not to say India's dumb. I'm just saying they're missing out on an opportunity here. There's some serious opportunities right around them. And if they're as paranoid or as afraid of creeping Chinese influence as they say that they are, uh, well, you got to take your opportunities where you can. And these are easy. These are easy dubs that they could be taking. I mean, again, these... Aside from Sri Lanka, it doesn't cost them anything to negotiate a trade deal with Afghanistan and Burma. Cost them nothing to recognize the governments there as legitimate governments when everyone else is playing footsies in, uh, with regards to the legitimacy of these governments. I know America certainly isn't going to recognize the Taliban as the legitimate government of Afghanistan until 2080. <laughs> Or until everyone else does, and then we'll think about it. India could do it. They're a regional power, potentially great power if they want to be. Definitely if they industrialize. But they're missing out. They're missing out on that opportunity. These are easy dubs that they're missing out on. And as they get caught up in a battle for influence with China just due to the fact that them and China are so big and the region they're playing in is so small when compared to the size of those two alone. There's just ain't enough room for the both of them. I feel that as India gets drawn up into this influence battle over the fate of their own neighborhood, they may come to regret not taking these opportunities as they present themselves. Um, but maybe that's just me projecting my own ideas onto the Indian situation and isn't actually reflective of how India feels about it. Cause that, that's also a possibility. Maybe I'm just wrong. Maybe I'm just wrong. You know, yo, yo, I gotta leave out the possibility that you're just wrong, but only time will tell. And yeah, only time will tell. Because that is all I have for you today, folks. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. Ah, the world is changing. And sometimes it's nice to take a moment to stop and 
really soak in how much it changes around the world, not just in one or two places. Really take a journey, take a walk around the world and see all these conflicts and trade and developments that just happen that we miss when we're focused on other things. The world is a big place and it always changes, but we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, Servus.